Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third episode of the Global Health Impact Fund podcast. I'm your host, Martin Eels, and we are all excited that you are joining us on this journey where we cover everything investor-related and health-related. Last episode, we covered how to understand venture capital. If you have not listened to this yet, we highly recommend you do. If you did listen to it and you liked the episode, we would really appreciate if you could follow and give us a five-star rating just so we can reach a bigger audience on these different channels. So in today's episode, we will talk about how to understand cap tables. Again, I have me with my amazing co-host, Dr. Oren, co-founder and CEO of the Global Health Impact Fund. Oren, it's great to have you again. Martin, it's it's great to be here again um, for episode three. And I was thinking as you were introducing the episode that if you made it through episode one and episode two, boy, are you in for a treat today. <laughs> Cap tables. You're a diehard and, and hopefully we can live up to the expectation of lucky number three. <laughs> That's great. Well, if you're ready, um, let's jump into today's episode, which is how to understand the cap table. So, Alan, first of all, what is a cap table? So, cap tables, um, we're going to get in the weeds today, folks. So, um, I hope uh, I hope you have your tinfoil hats on. So, cap tables, capitalization tables. So, capitalization is essentially um, a representation of the market value of the company. And, of course, in a publicly traded company, the capitalization is the stock value times the number of stock, you know, uh, shares that are issued. Um, in the private market, uh, we look at capitalization and we look at that number minus any debt that a company has. And that's going to give us the truest sense of the most recent market stipulated value. And I say it like that because in the private world, we don't revalue companies on a daily basis, like, or even moment to moment basis, as happens in the public market, really companies get revalued when they go back to the capital markets to raise money and there's an agreement between the investors and the company of what the value of that round should be. Okay, so why does a cap table matter to like both the startup and the investors? Well, it, you know, at its core, it's a document. It's a source of truth for ownership in the company, right? And you know, especially in the startup world, it's not uncommon to see things done, you know, a little loosey-goosey, right? So a cap table is a really critical document. It's going to document legal ownership of shares in a company. So, you know, it's, it's possible, let's say you and I are putting together a company, Martin, we want to have a podcasting media company, and, and we're going to start with this podcast. And we may not put together a formal business plan and an LLC and a cap table because it's just us. We're just throwing in a couple of bucks here and there. But as a company progresses outside of that, you know, beyond the garage stage, um, it needs to get more serious with its documentation and bookkeeping. It needs, and, and that becomes very important, particularly when you get into institutional investing. So you want to be really uh, buttoned down way before that. So that's going to be your source of truth. And companies that don't keep coherent, clear cap tables, those are big red flags for investors. So it's, it's it's really important, of course, again, not necessarily in the very, very early days, but as soon as you get serious about the business, you want to you really um, codify that. It's also important because, again, it becomes this agreement. So even if it's just you and, 
and uh, me starting a business um, in your garage, if we don't agree on who owns what from day one, we're setting ourselves up for a potential battle. Now, maybe you're cool and I'm cool and it doesn't really matter how it lands because we're both, we love each other and whatever. But more often than not, you're going to end up in founder fights, particularly if there starts to be divergence in opinion. So the sooner you can, um, you know, internally allocate whatever you do to a cap table and make it real, the better off you are. And then, of course, as you bring in investors, it, it even grows in importance. Yeah, it makes sense. So as the founder, you should really do this as early as possible. Just keep track of who owns what equity in the company. So I know we touched a little bit about it just then, but how exactly a cap table is used, um, you know, but more on the investor side? Well, so on the investor side, you know, first and foremost, it's a, you know, it's a description of the capitalization of the company. Um you know, as a company grows, it's going to grow in value, hopefully. And each time it goes to the markets, whether it's angel markets or whether it's institutional markets or even a public market, you know, it's going to issue stocks at a certain or equity or notes or whatever it issues at a certain value. And the cap table is going to keep track of all of that. And so it's going to give you an idea of who owns what and when they owned it. So it really becomes a financial history of the company. Additionally, there are a number of internal things that will happen within a company that are really important to make sure are captured on a, on a um, cap table. Uh, for example, employee stock options or warrants awarded for various investor activities, because those things can also create a tremendous dilution that if you're not tracking it, you'll be very surprised by. And, and of course, that changes your um, economics in a deal if you ignore that. And then lastly, it's important because you really want to capture debt on your cap table as well, because debt reduces the, you know, ultimate value of the capitalization because you have to deduct that. Okay. So I know what's exactly included in the cap table. Like obviously you have like the share class and equity value, but what else is in there? Well, you're going to see a you know a history of when the company raised each round. You're going to going to see a list of founders' ownership. Uh, you'll see a list of allocations. <clears throat> excuse me, allocations to employees, and both the founders' ownership and the allocations to employees can be in the form of actual shares or in the form of um, options. An option is the agreement to buy shares in the future at a predetermined price determined at the time of the issuing. Um, and you'll see what other investors are involved. And so when you look at a cap table, you're going to understand things about the company. For example, it's really important to know how much of the company will be retained by the founders, you know, what percentage. And on the one hand, you want to see that, um, that when you, buy in, many investors will say, or in, at least in the early stage, we invest to take 10% of the company. Well, that means that the founder has to sell 10% founders collectively. If you're the first investor has to sell collectively 10% of the company. So you need to know what they own and how many shares, you know, are issued in total to capture that 10%. On the other end of the spectrum, 
particularly in the, again, in the earlier stages, you know, you want to make sure that the incentives for the founders are aligned with the success of the company. And so you want to see that they have equity and, and a significant equity because you, you, if they're really great founders, want to make sure they're not going to be poached by another company because there's just not a real future economic incentive to grow this company. So you really want to look on both ends. Um, it's also important to see who else is invested in the company. Uh, you know, some of those investors may be strategic. Some of them may be competitive. And excuse me, it's just like, you know, joining a club, I guess. You want to know who's there because theoretically you'll all be working together towards a common goal. and You want to know that that'll be a successful endeavor. Okay, so if an investor has, you know, say he the, the say you're the first investor in the company and you have ten percent, and then the startup goes with this additional rounds, does your ten percent stay ten percent, or will yours get diluted? And <clears throat> so that that's a really important concept, and the answer is that you can often and one should maintain rights these anti-dilution provisions in your contract so that you can continue to invest um, and maintain your 10% uh, allocation, but you have to put more money in at a higher valuation in order to maintain that. Yeah. Alternatively, if you don't put more money in, either you don't have it or you're not set up for that or you're not interested, but other investors come in and do put money in, yeah, you'll be diluted. So if they raise more money and they, they you know, however the numbers work, they they bring in a lot of capital. You may have your position halved or even you know cut cut smaller, but it's a it's a smaller piece of a bigger pie. So yeah. I mean, dilution is not great, um, but as an economic thing, if the valuation of the company is going up, your position is increasing in value. You're not losing, you're not losing money on that, but you'll lose influence, right? I mean, at ten percent of the company. You know, you get a seat at the table. Uh, they answer your phone calls. At one percent of the company, they may be busy with the other shareholders. So, okay, yeah, like I know, like a cap table kind of tells a story of, like you said, how much the founders own and how much skin they have in the game. Like, I think we already answered this. Like, what's my cap table going to signal to future investors? Like, what's the most ideal cap table and what's the worst cap table possible that you've seen? Well, I think one thing that you want to be careful of is having too many people on your cap table. Like it gets congested, it gets costly. You know, it's hard to march to the beats of a lot of different drummers. So institutional investors don't like to see a congested cap table. So that's one of the reasons why Founders typically have minimums set at a not insignificant number because if it was at $100, then they can have, you know, a million, which you can anyway, but you can have a lot of investors and that's, yeah. that's not really tenable. So one thing you don't want to see is a very congested cap table. Um, I think, you know, you could make an argument that you don't want to see, you know, in a company that's been growing a super concentrated cap table either because... If the egos are very strong and the position is very large, um, there may be outside forces driving the boat that you don't agree with because you don't vet you don't vet the investors the way you vet the startup itself, right? So I, I think finding a healthy balance, like anything else, is probably 
is probably the right way to go with respect to ownership. I like to see, you know, as I mentioned, that the founders do retain in the early stage a significant amount of the company. Yeah. Um, I heard one person say recently, I thought this was an interesting thing. I don't know if I agree with it, but it's certainly worth considering that if you have a few founders on the cap table that there should be some sort of hierarchy in their ownership so that they're still ultimately a decision maker. And if there isn't, that that could cause problems. Yeah. Uh, another another issue is that, you know, you want to know that the people who own significant amount of shares as employees are still affiliated with the company. It's not so terrific to have a disgruntled employee being a large owner. Um, there was one other thing I was going to say. Um, and it just slipped my mind. It'll come to me in a second. But yeah, I mean, I think those are all, oh, I know, those are all things that um, you want to take in consideration. The last one I would say is a little bit more nuanced, but, you know, when shares are awarded, they're typically awarded as uh, against future performance. And so, you know, the idea of I should get all of this because of what I've done is, you know, I, I mean, I think it's an argument that can be well made, but for startups, it's not a terrific argument because it's what we can do tomorrow that really matters. And so awarding a chunk of shares or options to somebody because they've already completed a task works against the common goal for the company. And so it's also not in the best interests of that individual. So you really want to tie your compensation of equity, whether it's in options or in actual shares with ongoing performance. And one way to do that is to have vesting uh, so that if somebody leaves the company, you know, so you're a founder, you get allocated X amount of shares and it'll vest, you know, maybe some of them you get right up front, but they'll vest over a period of time. But if for some reason you end up leaving the company, then you leave that portion of shares on the table. I think that's probably a good strategy. Yeah, so I just want to touch that, like we, we've mentioned employees a few times right? and I've seen so many different numbers. Like what's the ideal number to have an option pool that goes towards those first employees? What's the ideal allocation of options? Yeah. I don't know, eight to 10% of your, of your company should be capitalized to have some options. I think it also depends on how much, you know, basically when you compensate people, um, you're going to compensate them with either equity, options, or cash. Okay. Right? Some sort of perk maybe, but that's not going to be much because you don't have a lot of extra money. The problem is most startups don't have a lot of money, so they can't compensate people at market rates. So, And also, when people just get a salary, they're not really buying into the future of the company, so they don't have a, a, you know, a horse in the race. So you want them to take some equity you know, vehicle, whether it's, you know, shares or whether it's, whether it's um, options, the shares, they, they'll, they'll have a taxable event. So you may want to avoid that. And that, that gets more specific, but um, you know, so you're going to want to use those options to lure people and to lure talent um, to the table, but you want to have a sense of what the market is paying people. You don't want to overpay yeah. people so for their work. Can you just explain exactly what is options? Like, I know it's obvious to us, but to some people it might not be as obvious. Like, yeah. what is an option for an employee? So, so they're called ESOPs or employee stock option plans. 
And what that is, is it's a plan to um, allow employees, you get, you grant them options. So it's an option to purchase. And, um, okay. and that means that at a specified value, usually under market value, because it's done internally, um, you can buy, and it's typically common stock at a certain price. So the idea is that today the company, let's say the price per share uh, per the 409A valuation was 60 cents a share. And I'm going to give you a thousand options and you'll vest that over a year. So it's a year later and we've gone out to the market and we've raised money and the price per share of the stock is now $5 because we've had a crazy year. Well, you can buy those thousand shares if they've fully vested it, that 60, whatever, 60 cents a share. And now the value of those shares will be that $5 a share. So you um, you have some taxable event there, but you didn't have to buy them. And you can ride that as long as the agreement allows you to ride that. Um, so it's just a way of me giving you the ability to buy into the future profits without you getting taxed. Okay. So if an employee does that, obviously buys it at 60 and it goes to $5 a share, can I sell straight away or would it need to be vested again over a certain amount of time before I could sell? Well, uh, I, there could be specifics in your agreement, but you would own the shares at that point. The problem would be more that if you're not in a public market, there may not be someone you could sell them to. Yeah. So Unless the VC and, wanted more. <laughs> right. And so sometimes, you know, there are secondary market paths, um, but but typically you'll probably hold on to them. So, so you may not buy any of them until you think a sale is coming up. And then it gets into a tax thing, long-term capital gains, short-term capital gains. And that's, that's more of an accounting issue that, you know, you talk to your, your accountant about. Yeah. Like I know like a lot of VCs come across this and, you know, a small mistake in the cap table will, you know, it will only get magnified over time. Like how can you prevent having the mistake in your cap table when raising capital? Well, I think, you know, you want, you want your, you want smart people looking at it, you know, obvious mistakes happen. You'll share your cap table with people uh, as you're trying to raise money. So if you're talking about you know, a clerical error, hopefully somebody will catch it or a lawyer will catch it. If you're talking more about the way you've structured things, hopefully you'll have mentors to give you advice. And that's one of the benefits, you know, of going into the institutional markets for capital is that you may be inexperienced, but you're getting the benefits of their experience when they come on board. Um, but yeah, you need to fix that stuff early. Sometimes you have to recapitalize the table. Um, do things. And I've seen, you know, when people have congested cap tables, lots and lots of investors, I've seen, I've seen structures created to put those folks into one, you know, one name on the capitalization table. You just have to, you know, try and be smart about those things. But sometimes it creates a lot of work downstream and a little work upstream might've, might've suited you better. Yeah. So as a founder, it's kind of important to strategically pick the right investors you know who bring more to the table than just the cash right yeah, yeah so, they, call that, they call that smart money right and it's yeah. you know, anybody well not anybody but you know you it's possible especially if you're a really hot target to get cash but 
excuse me, for instance, in healthcare, if, if you get invested in by, I don't know, say a network of physicians, that might add tremendous value to the company beyond the capital itself. If you are invested in by, you know, a really popular VC that has ties to a lot of the larger companies that are making acquisitions and they can make introductions for you and, and they've had experience, that's going to add a lot of value to your company. So here's a tough question for you. Do you uh, know a fund run by clinicians? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't recommend it more. I'd spend all my time there if I could. <laughs> Fantastic. So what kind of challenges have you encountered while constructing the cap table? Well, in fairness, I haven't really constructed too many because I've been a part of startups, but not as the founders who are doing that. I have seen problems with cap tables, though, where people didn't get 409A valuations and they were offering options to people that weren't valued. I've seen a lot of errors because people were freelancing. They weren't using the right people to do the right things. And so it's really important. These are these are your corporate documents and they represent you. And so you really want them to be sources of truth, not sources of chaos. So make sure they're reviewed by the right people before you distribute them publicly. Yeah. So I think like some key takeaways from all this is definitely use some available tools for the cap table management. Because like investors want to see you reserving enough equity for yourself and future employees. Uh, a healthy cap table, you know, it illustrates that your business potential for growth, and it also shows that you have solid judgment as a CEO. Like, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, the cap table is also going to be used for waterfall analysis by by investors. So you know, predicting you know what returns would look like. You need the cap table and it needs to be accurate. That's again, that's the source of truth that's going to, you know, trash in, trash out. Right? So yeah. it's just really critical. I mean, I think it's like any other document. It's like your subscription agreements and term sheets and so forth. You know, they need to be tight. It is worth having professionals look over these things rather than just hoping a template will suit you because a mistake in these things will cost you dearly down the road. So let me ask you, who's the best person to look over this? Would it be a lawyer or like one of your early investors? Like who would you recommend? Well, I think, I think you know, you're going to involve your lawyer and your accountant and you're going to involve, you know, if you have any legit experienced investors, they should look at it. But otherwise, your founding team uh, should be, you know, paying attention to these things. And they get updated all the time, you know, so... Uh, you want to pay attention to that. It, it's really important to know who has common shares and who has preferred shares and who's negotiated warrants and, you know, participating stock and non-participating stock. It can get very complicated. So, um, you, you know, you want to be fluent in cap table speak. Yeah. I think it's also important to keep track of the dates um, of who, who bought what when and, you know, when they can sell out, it's like, especially for employees as well, because if they leave, you know, they won't have that option no more if they're not vested that time. Yeah. And that that's the sort of thing that may not hurt the company directly, but it creates reputational damage. You know, yeah. I know employees who worked at companies and ended up leaving the companies, but, you know, gave a lot of sweat equity for the future promise 
of the company and they didn't end up getting to keep their options without exercising them. And it created a lot of bad blood. I so imagine. You don't want to do that. You know, again, going in, you want to, I would recommend avoiding that problem. Okay. Yeah. I've asked you everything I wanted to ask you for cap tables. So if there's anything you want to add, let's add it. If not, I think we'd have time for a couple of questions if you're okay with that. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think, you know, uh, there's a lot of great reading that you can even just do on the internet about cap tables, uh, so you can educate yourself. Um, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, your cap table is going to be at the center of your negotiation. So again, you know, make sure it's solid, uh, so that, you know, you're on the right footing when you're negotiating with people. Okay. Some really good advice. Thank you. All right, let's jump into the questions if you're okay with this. Yeah. Uh, let me have a look. So the first one is from Dr. Rahim in Utah. How do you decide between founders who owns what equity? Should that be split down the middle, you think? Or what's your opinion for this? Well, you know, we, we did touch on that a little bit. The problem with, you know, a 50-50 split is that you can have fighting and then it's not clear who, you know, where the decision-making comes down from. Um, but that's certainly the most equitable way to share things. I think that you have to look at what people are doing and what people will do and what their commitments are. And I guess if you're truly putting in 50% of value, then a 50-50 split or a 49-51 split, you know, is the right way to do it. But in general, people don't typically do that. And what you don't want to do is value an idea you know, the idea yeah. is not the company, the work, the sweat, the time is the company. So you want, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to be greedy. What's the expression? You know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. You know, if you're building something that will have value, having a piece of that is worthwhile. But if you take too much and the whole thing dies, then that has no value. So you want it right-sized. Um, so that would be my recommendation is just match it in a way that reflects the work that will be done and they can get their money, you know, or their equity over time. Okay. That's a great answer. Thank you. And then JP from Maine asks, should you, or how could you keep all investors aligned if possible? Keep them aligned? Yeah. <laughs> just be five steps ahead of them all and make them chase you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> commit some heinous crime and have them all like calling for your blood. I don't know. I mean, investors, you know, it's hurting cats, right? You want to um, communicate with them, be transparent with them. I think it's, this is a people skill. Uh, how do you get people to buy into what you're doing and you're going to make mistakes. So that's part of it, right? That's Okay. So um, I think by talking to them, seeking out their advice, um, being contrite um, and taking their feedback is the best way to create alignment. But even then, everybody aligned. I don't know if, if that listener can figure it out. I want them to call me. <laughs> That'd be good yeah. Maybe speak to the founders of um, Clubhouse. Exactly. <laughs> All right, last question is from Kevin from Seattle. Should you give away equity to advisors or any outsourced partners for a one-time contribution? 
So let's break that into two pieces. And this is really critical. You're a founder and you control the equity of your company, let's say, right? You're not giving anything away to anyone. You are bartering it or you are selling it. So an investor isn't getting a portion of your company. They're buying a portion of your company. An advisor isn't being given equity. An advisor is earning equity. I just, I, I want to stress that because people like to focus on this giveaway and I'm losing and like it's any negotiation. You shouldn't give anything away. There should be an exchange of some sort and that value, the exchange should be equivalent to the value of the equity or the options. So setting, you know, nomenclature aside, um, if they have something of value, I guess I've answered it in a way, if they have something of value that you need, you're going to have to give them something of value in exchange. It's better to marry the exchange for something that will be providing value over time. But let's just say strategically, you need what they have. They have a motor and you need it to start your car. You're going to have to give them something for it. So yeah, I have no problem with that. I, I Where I would have a problem is you gave them a significant amount of equity or options yeah. for that one-time thing. After that, you've lost or you, you no longer have that equity to give or trade or exchange with someone else. At the end of the day, you only have so much in your purse to divide among people who contribute to your company. And the more you give, the less you'll have. And at some point, you'll have nothing and you'll have nothing else to give, in which case your company's done. So you have to think not just of the individual relationship, but the overall ecosystem. And, you know, you have limited currency to operate with. Okay. I think that answers it perfectly. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, so I think that's going to be it for today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so our next episode will be on how to do due diligence. Owen's favorite. Okay. So, <laughs> can we say do due diligence? Do due do, do diligence. Due diligence is very good due diligence. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about that. That's actually pretty important and very interesting. Of course, we'll talk about that. Uh, generally, but then more specifically within, you know, the silo of healthcare where I operate because of that I understand a little better, but that'll I be. Think, I think that's great. So yeah, if anyone has any questions, um, again, you can email me at Martin with a Y. So it's M-A-R-T-Y-N at globalhealthimpactnetwork.net or follow me on Twitter and DM me at Martin underscore Eels, double E-L-E-S. Again, we thank you all for listening. Owen, again, thank you for joining me. And until next time, stay safe, everybody. Thanks, Martin. It was a pleasure as usual. Take care. Take care, Owen. Bye-bye.